This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussions of gruesome injuries and graphic detail that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Shortly before 5 p.m. on the afternoon of Tuesday, January 12th, Jean Potius was setting up rehearsal for her jazz band students at Haiti's Holy Trinity Music School. The school was open to students of all ages, and Jean was waiting for a few latecomers to arrive after work. As her students warmed up, Jean sat down at the piano bench and played a few riffs. A few minutes later, Jean stood up to hand out music scores and begin rehearsal. Not all of her students had arrived yet, but if she waited for them all to show up, they'd never get started. As Jean placed her cell phone on the piano's music stand, she heard a low rumble, almost like the sound of a timpani drum. She thought that was strange. The jazz band didn't have a timpanist. But before she could process that thought, the floor began to move underneath her. And then the world fell apart. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our first of two episodes on Jean Potius, a volunteer music teacher who was caught in a 7.0 magnitude earthquake in Haiti on January 12, 2010. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. According to the United States Geological Survey, there's no way to predict an earthquake, which makes it one of the planet's most terrifying natural disasters. People who live along major fault lines must live with the constant possibility that the so-called big one could hit at any moment, while they're driving to work, brushing their teeth, or sleeping in bed. 
For residents of major cities like Los Angeles or San Francisco, the fear can be mitigated by the knowledge that there's infrastructure in place to handle the effects of an earthquake. But in more impoverished places, like Haiti, it's hard to get systems in place and buildings up to code. When an earthquake struck just outside the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince in 2010, its people were completely unprepared for the devastation it caused. Jean Pochus was among those caught in the chaos, and there were no first responders or emergency services to help her and her students. She had to rely on her own instincts in order to stay alive. Religion and music were the two centers of Jean Pochus's life. Raised as a Roman Catholic, she converted to the Armenian Apostolic Church after becoming involved in an orchestra founded by one of its high priests. When Jean found out she was losing her job as an elementary school band director in the fall of 2007, she turned to her faith to guide her next steps. Jean was 49, getting close to retirement age. So rather than look for a new job at another school in Massachusetts, she decided she wanted to explore a faith-based calling, like a seminary program or a religious order. While she was ruminating on her future, Jean received an email about a volunteer opportunity at a music summer camp sponsored by the Holy Trinity Music School in Haiti. The camp's aim was to broaden the musical experience of Haitian students with limited means. As someone who had been playing trumpet professionally and leading both youth and adult orchestras since 1970, the opening for a brass instrument instructor was right up Jean's alley. Jean's career counselor had strongly recommended that she perform some missionary service before entering a seminary or joining a religious order. They felt it was important for her to get a taste of the rigors religious life might entail before jumping in headfirst. Jean agreed, and she felt like this summer camp would be the perfect chance to test her devotion. She arrived in Haiti in July 2008, in the middle of a sweltering summer. The moment she stepped off the plane into the airport terminal, the sweet melodies of a traditional Haitian band filled her ears. She immediately knew that she had made the right decision. As the music school's van made its way through Port-au-Prince's busy streets, Jean marveled at the colorful buildings and the ordered chaos all around her. Brightly decorated passenger trucks weaved around them, while brash street vendors stood on street corners, running up to stop vehicles to sell their wares. It was unlike anything she'd ever seen, and it was incredible. But as they left the city center and headed for the coastal community of Leogan, where the camp was located, the scene became much more somber. Abandoned cars littered the sidewalks, and emaciated children dressed in rags competed with feral dogs, goats, and pigs for scraps of food. It was then that Jean truly realized the enormity of the situation she was in. As she looked out at the abject poverty around her, she began to weep. She had no idea how a simple music camp could make any sort of difference. Her concerns were justified. Haiti was, and continues to be, one of the poorest countries on Earth. In 2008, 62% of all Haitians were below the international poverty line, which is defined by UNICEF as making less than $1.25 in U.S. dollars per day. 
But the moment Jean arrived at the camp, her feelings of despair evaporated. She jumped right into her music lessons and quickly bonded with both the adults and children she was teaching. As she looked at their smiling faces, she realized that she was helping in the best way she could. When the camp ended in late July, Jean decided to stay for another three-week music camp in the seaside town of Jackmel. During the camp's second week, she had her first experience with Haiti's challenging weather. Although she didn't realize it, this storm was the first of four hurricanes that would hit Haiti between August and October of 2008. According to Jeffrey Masters, the director of meteorology at Weather Underground Incorporated, these hurricanes were the worst series of storms Haiti ever experienced. Charcoal from burnt trees has traditionally provided Haiti with over 85% of its total energy. However, by 2004, overcutting left Haiti's mountains with only 1.4% of their natural tree cover. With nothing to stop the flow of water down the barren hillsides, the storms that hit the country in 2008 led to massive landslides and rampant flooding. Hurricanes rarely hit Haiti. Prior to 2008, the last Category 5 hurricane was in 1851, so the country was unprepared. This series of four massive storms in 2008 killed 793 people, destroyed 70% of the country's crops, and caused over $1 billion in damages. Luckily for Jean, the town where she was staying was relatively unaffected, but the storm brought something else with it, sickness. After the storm dissipated in the last week of August 2008, Jean contracted malaria, enduring a serious fever, vomiting, diarrhea, muscle cramps, and headaches. Although she had been taking anti-malaria medication in preparation for the trip, she had apparently started taking it too soon before leaving. Malaria can be deadly if not treated quickly, but Jean's camp director discovered it in time and made sure she was properly cared for. After a few days of bed rest, she had regained enough strength to play a solo at the camp's final concert. Jean's time in Haiti profoundly affected her. She had witnessed the country's incredible culture and developed a deep bond with her campers. But she had also come head to head with Haiti's widespread poverty and inadequate infrastructure. While she knew that teaching music wouldn't help save the environment or rebuild destroyed homes, Jean saw the joy her campers felt from expressing themselves. She resolved to dedicating herself to spreading music education throughout Haiti. Shortly after her visit in 2008, Jean founded a nonprofit organization called Instrumental Change Incorporated. Dedicated to helping disadvantaged people through music programs, Jean's organization founded and supported programs all over Haiti. By January 2010, she was living in Haiti almost year-round. In addition to her charity work, she was working full-time for the Holy Trinity Music School in Port-au-Prince, teaching both children and adults. Normally, Jean stayed at a guest house on the Holy Trinity campus, but on January 12th, she found a benefactor had donated money to put her up in her own apartment in the hills. 
Before that evening's rehearsal, she gazed down at the city from her new apartment. She was looking forward to seeing that view every day on her commute. As she was getting ready to leave, she got a call from one of her adult saxophonists, Linek Huban, who told her he was running late. They had a big performance coming up at the end of the month to attract new donors, and Jean wanted to make sure the whole band was ready for it. Linek insisted he would be there as soon as possible. As she gathered sheet music into her briefcase, Jean made sure to grab a bottle of water and a hand towel. Even though it was January, Haiti was still hot and muggy. But even with the oppressive heat, she made sure to keep her socks on when she changed into her sandals. The heat might be bad, but as she had learned from her malaria experience, the mosquitoes were worse. Around 4.40 p.m., Jean entered the concert hall. To her delight, many of her students were already there and warming up for rehearsal. Jean sat down at the piano, placing her cell phone on the music stand. She played a few warm-up riffs of her own to get ready, then stood up from the bench to distribute handouts on jazz improvisation techniques. As she stood up from her seat, Jean heard a low rumble that sounded oddly like a rolling timpani drum. But before she could fully process the fact that the band didn't have a timpani, the floor began to move below her feet. Jean shouted for her students to run, but with the floor churning beneath them like ocean waves, it was nearly impossible to move. Only one student managed to make it out of the auditorium. The rest had no choice but to drop where they were. All Jean could do was fall in the fetal position and pray to God. This is actually the recommended advice during an earthquake. Drop, cover, hold on. Trying to run outside only increases the chances of injury. The outer walls of buildings are the most likely to collapse, and moving around increases the chances that you'll be hit by debris. All around Jean, chunks of concrete rained down. Panels of light fixtures fell from the ceiling. One giant piece of debris crashed down and completely obliterated the piano, where she had been sitting just moments earlier. Jean and a few of her students crawled over and took shelter under the fallen light fixtures. The upside-down U-shapes protected them from being crushed by other falling objects. Finally, the shaking began to slow. The rain of dust and concrete subsided, and Jean looked up to see that most of the room was still standing. The earthquake had lasted less than a minute, but it felt like an eternity. Jean staggered to her feet. She called out to her students, and although they were caked in dust, they all seemed to be relatively in one piece. One of her younger students, David, had been on the stage with her. He helped Jean find her briefcase. Unfortunately, her cell phone and water bottle had disappeared in the wreckage. Cut off from her other students, who were able to climb out of a hole in the back of the auditorium, Jean and David hobbled toward the steel door that led to the rest of the music school. The earthquake had caused the doorframe to rise to about a 60-degree angle, but it remained intact. All around them, they could hear the rumble of buildings falling down from the damage. 
Jean knew she might not have long to get out of the concert hall before it collapsed. She may have already been too late. Just as Jean and David reached the doorframe, the rumbling around them grew louder. Then the ground began to shake again. Coming up, Jean struggles to find safety. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. At 4.53 p.m. on January 12, 2010, a massive 7.0 earthquake trapped Jean Potius and her jazz band students in the Holy Trinity School's concert hall. As the building came down around them, fallen light panels had protected Jean and her students from being crushed to death. The challenge now was finding a way out of the building. With the main entrance blocked, Jean and her student David headed for a steel doorway that led to another building and hopefully a clear exit. But when they reached the door, they stopped. The shaking had started again. Jean was experiencing an aftershock, a smaller tremor that follows the main quake. But while aftershocks may be lower on the Richter scale, they can often be more dangerous. With buildings already weakened, aftershocks can cause structures that initially survived to topple. Although many people learn that it's safe to stand in a doorway during an earthquake, it's actually highly dangerous in most cases. According to the CDC, doorframes usually are no less likely to collapse than any other part of the building, and the open space doesn't protect from flying objects, which are the cause of most earthquake-related injuries. However, in Jean's case, this doorway may have saved her life. Since it was made from reinforced steel, it may have been stronger than the rest of the building and helped keep her safe from falling debris. While the aftershock did cause more debris to fall, it didn't cause the building to fully collapse. Once the shaking subsided, Jean and David continued into the hall, where they encountered two more survivors, one of her students and another instructor. As they tried to navigate the cramped remains of the hallway, Jean slipped on the dust-covered floor and punctured her right hand on a nail. The pain was excruciating, but Jean knew she had to keep moving. The building was crumbling all around her, and it could collapse at any moment. Unfortunately, finding a way out wasn't as simple as heading for the nearest exit. The music school was connected to Holy Trinity's elementary school by a lower-level hallway. But when Jean and her companions reached the stairs leading down toward the other building, all they found was rubble. The group went back down the hallway and headed for a rehearsal room. They figured they might be able to crawl through the windows connecting the rehearsal room to the hallway and then find their way outside. But once again, they realized the stairs leading down to the rehearsal room had also been destroyed. 
Now there was a six-foot drop between the hallway and the rehearsal room below. Jean didn't think her legs could handle the jump, but she urged her younger companions to go on without her and seek help. While they went ahead, Jean went back into the school to see if there were any other survivors trapped inside. Down the hallway, she came upon a small group of people trying to break down the steel door to a practice room where a student was trapped. Using the bottoms of music stands, Jean and the others took turns trying to ram down the door. Once the student was free, Jean joined up with this new group to search the hallway for more survivors. They came upon a man desperately trying to lift a slab of concrete that had fallen on top of his daughter. It took the efforts of five people, but they were finally able to lift the slab long enough for the man to pull his daughter to safety. But the space underneath the concrete also exposed the motionless body of a school official. She had sacrificed herself to protect the young girl. Jean felt the body for a pulse, but it was too late. The woman was dead. Finding a dead body can be incredibly shocking. According to the professional biohazard cleaning company EcoBear, such a discovery can result in psychological and emotional maladies that include traumatic grief as well as post-traumatic stress disorder. With all the chaos around her, Jean didn't have time to process the emotions she was feeling yet. In order to survive, she had to keep going forward. With the help of the group of survivors she had joined, she was able to take the six-foot drop into the rehearsal room and search for a way out. As she had hoped, someone had broken one of the windows at the back of the room, leading out to another part of the building. Jean managed to squeeze through the small window, but she wasn't out of the woods yet. Just outside the rehearsal room, she climbed up a pile of concrete slabs and found herself in yet another hallway. Luckily, this hallway was relatively intact, as were the stairs at the end of it that led down to the outdoor courtyard at the front of the school. Jean knew that if she could just make it there, she would find safety in the Holy Trinity Cathedral. The scene in the courtyard was surreal. The air was thick with dust from the collapsed buildings, and the setting sun cast everything in a dark, orange hue. Jean pressed forward. All she needed to do was get herself to the cathedral. But when she reached the cathedral's parking lot, all she saw was a pile of rubble. The entire structure had fallen. Except for the cries of the survivors and rumble of crumbling buildings, all was silent. No police sirens, no wailing ambulances, no sign that help was on the way. The earthquake had leveled nearly all of Port-au-Prince. Overall, over 293,000 homes were damaged beyond repair. In addition, over 4,000 schools, including Holy Trinity, were destroyed. Faced with all this destruction, Jean's legs buckled underneath her. She burst into tears. It was too much for her to handle. But despite the incredible chaos around her, Jean knew she couldn't let herself be overwhelmed. People needed help, and it was obvious there would be no cavalry coming to save the day. It was up 
to her. Jean's first order of business was to take a head count of the survivors in the courtyard. She didn't know who else had been in the school when the earthquake hit, but she could at least figure out which of her students had made it out and who might still be trapped inside. With the help of the school nuns, who had safely made it to the courtyard, Jean ushered everyone away from the building in case an aftershock caused it to collapse. Through it all, she comforted distressed survivors who were falling into hysteria. But Jean knew that comfort and prayers wouldn't be enough. She had to find medical supplies, and the only place she'd find them was back inside the school. From the courtyard, Jean could see a light on in one of the elementary school classrooms. She reasoned that if the light was still on, the room must still be relatively intact, despite the voice in the back of her head telling her not to go back inside. Jean ventured back into the belly of the beast. The classroom had somehow survived the disaster. Inside, Jean found dozens of bottles of water and Tampico, a popular fruit-flavored drink. There was a wooden desk she could use to store supplies and a long table that could be used for examining injured survivors. In the back of the room, Jean could see through a partially collapsed wall that her old guest house was still standing. She resolved to go inside in the morning once there was more light. Returning to the courtyard, Jean realized that bottles of water and Tampico wouldn't be enough to get everyone through the night. One of her students had a badly broken leg. Another's entire lower body had been crushed by falling rubble. Many had suffered debilitating crushing injuries from being pinned under debris. Along with broken bones and bloody lacerations, a strange effect of these injuries caused the victim's skin to become shiny, almost like it had been burned. Crushing injuries can often be fatal without treatment. According to former CNN correspondent Madison Park, when a muscle is crushed, it releases particles called myoglobin. When they get caught in the kidneys, these particles block the organs from draining urine, and the chemicals normally released through urine remain within the body. This can lead to serious illness or death. With no emergency services on the way, there was little Jean could do to properly treat anyone who had suffered a crushing injury. But she was determined to make them as comfortable as possible while they waited for medical professionals to arrive. As the night dragged on into the early morning, aftershocks continued to shake the courtyard. In the first nine hours after the initial quake, there were over 40 smaller earthquakes, ranging from 4.5 to 5.9 on the Richter scale. The constant shaking made it nearly impossible for Jean to get even a moment of rest. It seemed like whenever she sat down, she felt a telltale popping in her ears, signaling that the ground was about to tremble. On top of the constant dread of aftershocks, Jean's mind was plagued by the sight of the blinking taillights of a white SUV crumpled underneath a toppled staircase. She was worried that the car belonged to her student, Linek Huban, who had been running late on his way to rehearsal. She racked her brain to remember what kind of car Linek drove, but her memory was blank. 
Throughout the night, Jean periodically went up to the crushed SUV. She knew there was almost no chance the driver had survived, but she prayed that if Linek had been trapped inside, somehow the windshield had protected him. But for the moment, there was nothing she could do to find out. After a night that dragged on seemingly without end, the sun finally began to filter through the cloud of dust around 5 a.m. With enough light to safely navigate their surroundings, Jean and her friend Skander de Rosier headed to the guest house to see if they could salvage any useful supplies. But it wasn't easy to get there. Fallen concrete had caused the gate guarding the stairway to fall at a sharp angle. To get to the guest house, they would have to crawl through a two-and-a-half-foot space underneath the gate. As she shuffled on her hands and knees, Jean braced for the gate to collapse on top of her. But she and DeRosier made it through in one piece. She was relieved to see that the guest house's walls, which were reinforced with metal, had remained mostly intact. Once she was inside, Jean saw that the small kitchen had been completely destroyed by debris that had broken through the back wall. Her thoughts immediately went to Marlene, the guest house's cook. But Jean remembered that Marlene had left about an hour before the earthquake. She hoped that wherever Marlene was, she was safe. Fortunately, the refrigerator was still standing and still contained food, water, and ice. A few folding chairs, plastic cups, and dishes had survived as well. Jean's room was also relatively undamaged. Her laptop was still in one piece, as were the vitamins, medicine, and water treatment tablets she kept in her desk. The guest house turned out to be a veritable treasure trove of medical supplies. There were clean linens to use as blankets that could also be torn up and used for bandages, braces, or slings tampons and pads that could be used to soak blood from wounds, bottles of Tylenol and ibuprofen, a small tube of antibiotic ointment, Lysol and Clorox sprays that could help clean infected wounds, and an oil lamp and matches. As Jean and DeRosier gathered supplies, she could hear knocking coming from behind the collapsed walls of the professional school, which was just behind the guest house. Jean shouted that she was coming. It seemed like they heard her, since the knocking grew faster and more frantic. She found a couple of small boys who could climb on top of the rubble, but there was no way to get through the debris. The knockers would have to remain trapped until proper rescue services arrived. All throughout the morning, Jean and DeRosier went back and forth, gathering everything they could from the guest house. By the second and third trip, the knocking had all but stopped. She wondered if the people who were trapped would survive long enough to be rescued. But Jean couldn't dwell on horrors she couldn't fix. She had to focus on what she could do, set up a makeshift emergency clinic. There was no doctor to administer treatment, but there was no time to waste. She would have to do it herself. Coming up, Jean does her best to provide treatment for injured survivors. And now, back to the story. After making it through the night of January 12, 2010, in one piece, 
Jean Potius turned her focus to helping her fellow survivors who had suffered injuries during the earthquake and its aftermath. With no doctor in sight, Jean resolved to use her basic first aid knowledge to do whatever she could to help. Shortly after sunrise on January 13th, Jean began to set up her makeshift health clinic. She had a long table she'd salvaged from a classroom, a wooden desk to hold supplies, and a few folding chairs for people to sit in as they waited for treatment. It wasn't much, but it was all she had. Using the items she had scavenged from the guesthouse, Jean began to treat the survivors who had made it out of the Holy Trinity School. Fortunately, a few cars had survived the earthquake, so Jean was able to send those with severe crushing injuries or broken bones to the nearest hospital. But those with more minor injuries like cuts, facial wounds, and sprains stayed at Holy Trinity to be treated by Jean. With no one else to help her, Jean was inundated with patients. The chaos was overwhelming. Dust still covered everyone and everything. The smell of blood and excrement permeated the air. People were crying out in pain, making it hard to concentrate on whatever task was at hand. And people were constantly pulling Jean in all directions. Jean dashed from patient to patient, urgently cleaning and dressing wounds to prevent infection and to stop the clouds of flies in the courtyard from laying eggs inside the cuts. She had no time to think about her own injuries and refused to eat. Jean was heavyset, and she knew her body could last a little while longer without food. All she would allow herself were a few occasional sips of water. As the morning went on, more and more patients began to flood Jean's clinic. In addition to the survivors from the school, word was spreading that there was someone treating injuries at Holy Trinity. By mid-morning, there was a line five or six people deep behind each of the handful of folding chairs Jean had set up. There were even more people spilling out into the street. Making matters more complicated, all the people Jean had sent to the hospital came back to the courtyard after a matter of hours. The earthquakes had destroyed most of the city's hospitals, and for the few that had remained intact, there were no medical personnel there to actually provide any care. Jean wished she could do more for them, but she simply didn't have the resources or training to help. All she could do was make them as comfortable as possible. Jean established a system for determining the order of who to treat, a process known as triage. Her first priority was children, and from there, she focused on treating the most serious cases that she was able to handle. Even for minor wounds, treatment wasn't easy. Many of Jean's patients had pieces of cement embedded in their scalps, but she didn't even have tweezers to remove the debris. All she could do was disinfect them with nasal saline solution or household cleaning spray, put on a dab of antibiotic ointment, dress it with a sheet or sanitary pad, and send them on their way. Around 1 p.m., one of the women waiting for treatment started getting angry. She shouted at Jean for taking too long. Jean explained that she wasn't a medical professional. She was only a music teacher trying to help people. The woman grew quiet, but the experience had rattled Jean. Exhaustion hit her. 
and the emotions she had been bottling up in order to stay focused came flooding out all at once. She pushed her way through the crowd, shrugging off the hands grasping at her for attention. In the relative quiet of the school's inner courtyard, Jean found a small statue of a nun holding a child. With tears streaming down her cheeks, she prayed to God for strength. The brief respite proved to be all she needed. Drawing on every reserve of strength she had, Jean stood up and went back to work. By mid-afternoon, she saw several ambulances and emergency vehicles pass by the Holy Trinity complex. She tried to wave them down, but the drivers ignored her. It was encouraging to see that emergency services were getting back on their feet, but at the same time, it seemed that the survivors at Holy Trinity clearly weren't their first priority. Around the same time, Jean noticed a middle-aged white man taking photos near the gate. When Jean came up to the gate to shoo him off, he remarked that she must be exhausted. It had to be overwhelming to be a doctor in charge of so many patients. Jean told him she wasn't a doctor. She was just a music teacher trying to do what she could. At this point, the man began to criticize Jean. He asked her why she didn't have rubber gloves. She was completely flabbergasted. She wasn't exactly able to go to the store and buy some. But the man only told Jean that he was a respiratory therapist in the United States and that he knew what he was talking about. Although Jean didn't appreciate his attitude, she knew better than to look a gift horse in the mouth. She asked the man to come and help her. The man only smiled, lifted his hands in the air, and backed away into the crowd. Jean never saw him again. She couldn't comprehend why a trained medical professional wouldn't lift a finger to help injured people. For all the people that Jean was able to help throughout the day, there were just as many who were beyond saving. Jean wasn't able to treat anyone who had suffered massive crushing injuries, broken bones, or even any overly deep cuts or lacerations. What made the experience even more horrifying was that many of the people who died near her parking lot clinic couldn't be taken elsewhere after they passed away. The body of one young man who had died from a deep laceration rested by the gate with his eyes still open throughout the entire day. Around 5 p.m., 24 hours after the earthquake, Jean was approached by her friend Miche Charlot, a clarinet and saxophone teacher at Holy Trinity. Miche also gave lessons to Jean's friend Lynek Huban, whom she feared was trapped underneath the crushed SUV. Jean embraced Miche and told him she was afraid Lynek was dead. But when she led him to the SUV, Miche was confident that it wasn't Lynek's car. A wave of relief washed over Jean. She was still concerned that Lynek might be in danger somewhere else, but knowing that he wasn't trapped or dead somewhere within the school lifted a huge weight off her shoulders. By early evening, only six patients remained at Jean's makeshift clinic. She was finally able to stop and take a breath. By her count, she had treated over 300 people throughout the day. 
Most of them had been taken to the Champ de Mars, a park near the National Palace, and the crowd was beginning to thin. But as dusk fell, a final group arrived. It was a father accompanied by his two teenage children. He was holding an infant in his arms. The man told Jean that their home had fallen down on them and killed the children's mother. She had died protecting their baby boy in her arms. Thankfully, the infant hadn't sustained any injuries, but there was still the matter of finding a way to feed him. Jean rummaged through her boxes of supplies and came up with a half-gallon carton of milk that didn't need to be refrigerated until after it was opened. She washed out an empty bottle of nasal saline mist and poured the milk into it. The bottle had a nipple-like tip, and the baby was able to drink from it. After he drank about half the bottle, Jean helped his father burp him. It was a small victory, but it boosted Jean's spirit. By around 8 p.m., a van pulled up to the now nearly empty parking lot. Jean braced herself for another flood of patience, but it was only two men, and they didn't look like they needed any care. They told her that the bishop at the nearby College St. Pierre had heard about Jean's efforts, and he was hoping she would come sleep at his church for the night. At first, Jean refused. She still had six patients resting at her clinic, and she didn't want to leave them. But three of Jean's older students assured her they would look after them, so she grudgingly accepted. She knew she was exhausted. As the van weeped through Port-au-Prince's debris-ridden streets, Jean couldn't help but think back on the first time she arrived in Haiti. The colorful building she had fallen in love with had been leveled. The appetizing smells of food stalls had been replaced by the acrid scent of smoke, blood, and excrement. Instead of the rabble of street musicians and corner merchants, all she could hear were the cries and screams of people who still needed help. Finally, they arrived at the college. Like the Champ de Mars, it had become a refuge for displaced survivors. The soccer field had become a tent city. The scope of the human toll was almost too much to grasp. Jean's escorts brought her to the bishop, Jean Zaget de Rassis. He smiled and thanked her for the incredible work she had done. One of Jean's friends was there, an American seminarian named Jude Harmon. He helped her set up a tent, but she felt like she couldn't sleep without seeing the stars. Her claustrophobia was likely a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. According to a 2014 study by Emily Goldman and Sandro Galea of Columbia University, one of the effects of PTSD is being particularly watchful or on guard. Unable to bear the sensation of being boxed in by the tent, Jean chose to sleep outside, using her gym bag as a cushion. But as she tried to fall asleep, she was overcome with a deep chill. Although it was still warm outside, she was shivering uncontrollably. Her body was going through shock. On top of the traumatic event she had just experienced, she was dehydrated, hungry, and badly sunburned. While Jean shivered on the ground, three boys ran into the camp screaming, Water! Water! Jean sat up and asked the bishop what was happening. 
He told her the boys were saying a tsunami was coming. As the camp erupted into chaos, Jean struggled to gather her things. When she had arrived at the bishop's camp, she thought her trials were finally coming to an end. In reality, they were just beginning. For more information on Jean Potius, amongst the many sources we used, we found Shaken, Not Stirred, a survivor's account of the January 12, 2010 earthquake in Haiti by Jean Potius, extremely helpful to our research. Thanks for listening to Survival. Tune in next week as Jean Potius continues to fight to save the lives of the people who survived the 2010 Haiti earthquake. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskin, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Survival is written by Alex Benedin and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs> <laughs>